Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35 says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless the first, he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray together. Jesus, we have come to this place because we want to hear from you. Lord, we've come to this place because we believe that you have the words of eternal life. Maybe there are some who have come here who have been told that you have the words of eternal life and are here to wrestle with your identity. And I pray, God, that we would be confronted today with who you are. Lord, that we would have an encounter with the risen Christ in this place. God, would you lead us and teach to us? No one wants to hear from an individual. We want to hear from your word. No one wants to hear from a man. We want to hear from your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, come and teach us in this space. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, everybody's house has a junk drawer. Unless you are like the most consistent, amazing minimalist on the planet, everybody has that drawer in the house where all of the things that don't belong in a particular category end up. I was looking through my junk drawer the other day, and there's like scissors and tape and keys that go to who knows what, and batteries that honestly I don't even know if they have power anymore. They're just in there because my kid's like, oh, I'll take the batteries out, get a new one. I like sort through the batteries all the time, and they like put the used batteries in with the new batteries. And so we've got, you know, rubber bands, broken rubber bands, you know, all kinds of nonsense that just goes into this junk drawer because it doesn't have a particular category. It's just junk. It's just random nonsense. The characters in Mark's gospel don't have categories for Jesus. They don't. He breaks all the molds. He breaks all of their categories. They don't understand him. He has claimed to have authority to forgive sins. He calls himself Lord of the Sabbath, making himself above the law of God. He is acting like he thinks he's God. And they don't understand him. If it were just talk, the people could ignore him. If it were just the random nonsense of some man on the street claiming to be God incarnate, they could ignore him, but he's backing it up with power. 
He's backing it up by healing the sick. He's backing it up by casting out demons. He's backing it up with his word of authority, his word of teaching. And so here is this man who is acting like he thinks he's God, saying things that only God can say, and then doing things that only God can do. And so they can't just put him in a junk drawer. They can't just cast him aside. They can't just ignore him. Each and every one of us today in our lives or right now will have the opportunity to reckon with the identity of Jesus. You may receive him, you may deny him, but you cannot ignore him. Jesus will not be ignored. And so our passage today describes two opinions of Jesus, two groups that make dangerous accusations. The first accusation made against Jesus is that he is out of his mind. Jesus' family comes from Nazareth to forcibly take him. The, 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 uh, the word there used for to seize him is to arrest him, to apprehend him. They have come here to capture him and to take him back to Nazareth because they're concerned for his mental health. They're saying he's out of his mind. And one reason that they say this is because they find out that he has been so busy that he's not even eating. And in a society and an economy where food is scarce and someone is not taking care of themselves and eating, that's going to cause physical problems. Maybe they've also heard that he stays up all night praying. So now he's not eating, he's not sleeping, they, they hear about what he's doing, and so they come and they say he has clearly misunderstood something about himself. Even his mother Mary comes to remove him from the public eye. She knew he was special. The angel had told her so. The angel had told her that Jesus would be special. And she comes to remove him from the public eye. She must have looked at his ministry or heard how it was taking shape and assumed that he has misunderstood himself. That he has misunderstood his identity. That he is out of his mind. And so she and Jesus' brothers come to help him. Today, this accusation, this opinion about Jesus is still common. Many will say that Jesus was a good man. Many will say, perhaps, that Jesus was even the best that humanity could produce. That there, is, there has never been a man like him. That he, they will acknowledge that he was the best man. But they're unwilling to accept his identity as divine. And say what you want about whether or not Jesus was God, but it is certain that he acted as though he believed that he was. Now, if you meet someone on the streets who claims to be God, you would think they're a fool. You would think that they were absolutely insane. You would have every right to think that they are out of their mind. And so it makes sense that if Jesus truly believed if Jesus truly believed that he was God in the flesh and yet was not, he would be insane. He would be absolutely out of his mind. But this is the conclusion that we must draw. We must come to this conclusion if we want to accept the example and the teaching of Jesus but reject his identity. We're saying, yes, he's a good teacher. Yes, he teaches us about life. Yes, he shows us an example. He gives us a way to move forward. And I'm going to follow his teaching because I believe that it's good. But he himself is a lunatic. We would be foolish. 
we would be fools to follow him if he believed that he was God in the flesh and yet was not. And so to follow his example would make us just as insane. If Jesus is not who he says he is, then we'd be fools to follow. and We're wasting our time. But this is still one opinion that continues in an unbelieving world. Many people want to honor his teachings and his teachings on love and, and sacrifice, but they deny his identity. And they may not come right out and, and say it, but what they conclude is that Jesus is out of his mind, a good but a lost soul who died tragically as a result of his megalomania. He believed he was greater than he was, and it killed him. Now, someone might respond to this, By saying, and you hear this all the time, well, I don't believe that Jesus ever claimed to be God. Show me in the text where Jesus says, I am God. Now, we are 21st century Western Americans. We like, well, most of us, uh, we like, you know, just give it to me straight. Just show me the definition. Open the dictionary. Like, give me the words. But the way the Jewish culture communicated truth was through story. The way they communicated was, was much more creative than just telling somebody words that could be isolated and separated from the rest of their understanding. They gave us a picture. They give us a story that carries so much more meaning and is so much more applicable to our lives. And so when we read the story of the gospel like first century Jews, it, 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 Jesus absolutely was acting as God. There's a scene where Jesus says, for what good work do you want to stone me to the Pharisees? And they say, it's not for any good work, but that you, though a man, make yourself God. They absolutely understood that the things Jesus was saying and doing made, uh, uh, he 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 was conducting himself as God would conduct himself. And so you might say that I don't believe that Jesus actually thought he was God. And you can certainly take that position, but you must consider it along with everything that he said and did because he acted like he was. And so this would make you align more with a different accusation. But I'll warn you, this second opinion is significantly less gracious and significantly more dangerous. The word is spreading fast. And the religious elites in Jerusalem hear about what's happening. And so they send out the big guns to assess the situation. These scribes come from Jerusalem. Mark is making a point. Jesus has been confronted by the scribes. He's been confronted by the Pharisees. But now word has gotten to the Jewish ruling council. And they're telling their big guns, hey, go check this guy out. Go figure out what's going on. And so they come, and they come, and they accuse him of being possessed by Satan. These Jerusalem elites believe that it is by demonic power that Jesus casts out demons. And so they accuse him of being possessed by Beelzebul. Now, this name, Beelzebul, it most likely derives from the name of the Canaanite god Baal from the Old Testament, who seduced the Israelites and led them into, uh, into sin and led them astray. And if you see, you know, Baalzebul and Baal, like it comes from the same. And so they, there's debate over what the name means, but it is either Lord of the House or Lord of the Flies, if you've ever read that, that book. That is what most people believe this name means. And it's unclear 
how this name became associated as a name for Satan, but it's clear that Jesus understands it this way. So they say, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And Jesus' response is, how can Satan cast out Satan? How is this even possible? The scribes are not just accusing Jesus of being under the power of some random demon. They're saying that the devil himself is at the helm of Jesus' life and ministry. And it's by the power of Satan that Jesus is doing all of these things. Now notice something that's very interesting. The religious elites come to Jesus and what they do not say is, he doesn't cast out demons. This is a farce. This is a hoax. It's smoke and mirrors. No, they absolutely give credit to the works that Jesus is doing. They never deny that what he is doing is actually casting out demons. Now, when your followers and your opponents affirm the things that you're doing, you can take that to the bank. Jesus' followers said that he had this power over the demonic realm. His opponents said that he had power over the demonic realm. And so we, as we're standing here watching this, we cannot say this never happened. Because even the Jewish people outside of the first century, when reflecting back on the ministry of Jesus, who did not accept him, they called him a sorcerer. They believed that he had power. They believed that he did things, but they believed that he did things by the power of the enemy and not by the finger of God. And so they acknowledge that what he's doing is real. And so Jesus was truly freeing people from demonic oppression. The problem for the scribes is not that Jesus was doing these things. The problem is that they believed he derived his power from Satan. And so Jesus responds first by showing the logical inconsistency of their accusation. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? This makes no sense. The fate of a divided kingdom and the fate of a divided house is tragedy. Neither of them will be able to stand. Now, there are people who believe that Jesus may be reflecting on significant moments in Israel's history as he talks about a divided kingdom and as he talks about a divided house. See, the beginning of the end of the nation of Israel as in in antiquity was when the kingdom was torn in two after Solomon. When Solomon died, his son uh, was, was ruling in a way that the people did not want to receive. And so the northern tribes separated into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern two tribes remained the kingdom of Judah. And this was the beginning of the end because a house divided against itself cannot stand. They were no longer unified and so each of them got picked off, the northern tribes by the Assyrians and the southern tribes by the Babylonians and they went into exile. And so Jesus may be reflecting on the fact that the Israelites, they know this, that a house divided against itself cannot stand. How can Satan be divided against Satan? But there's another thing that Jesus might be reflecting on in this passage. He may be reflecting on something that happened historically in the nation of Israel in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This very important 400-year of historical period when the, uh, there was another, uh, Israel had won their freedom and they were being ruled by a family of Jewish people known as the Hasmoneans, the Hasmonean dynasty. And there were two brothers 
in this family, one was a Pharisee and one was a Sadducee. Their house, their family, their dynasty, their legacy was divided. And their, their, their rivalry with one another became so violent and so vicious that they each appealed to Rome, the rising superpower, and said, Pompey, come and settle this issue for us. And Pompey said, absolutely, you now work for me. And they opened the gates to Rome. Rome comes in, conquers them easily, and now they live under Roman oppression until for centuries. And so people think that Jesus might be reflecting on this. But even if he's not, even if he's not, even if he's just making random examples, think of it this way. Not even Satan's kingdom divides. Satan knows better. The devil knows better not to divide. What are we doing, guys? Why, why does it happen in God's people? Why do we divide over stupid things? Why do we divide over how we vote? Why do we divide over all of these things? Why do you look at the church, the family of God, the kingdom of God, and see division? Not even Satan does this. And so Jesus is saying, how can Satan divide against Satan? How can he do that? He will fall. And I will tell you the truth, that if the church, the capital C church in the world continues to fight over little things that are of no consequence in the kingdom, we will not stand. Not even the devil himself does this, but he knows. But he knows that if he can get in there, if he can get in there and he can separate and he can drive wedges between people, we will not stand. Jesus says, how can Satan cast out Satan? It's not logically coherent. The fate of a divided kingdom is ruin, and the fate of a divided house is tragedy. Neither are going to be able to stand. But not only is it illogical for Satan to cast out Satan, but Jesus continues by saying that in, in casting out demons, Jesus' house, is, or, sorry, Satan's house, two different people, very different people, is being plundered. He's saying it's being plundered. The only way this is possible is for the stronger to come and bind the strong man of the house. And so Jesus is stronger than Satan. Jesus has bound Satan. He's plundering his house. Now, as a kid, uh, I remember always, you know, kids, we, like kids grow up and we have fears and we think about, you know, all kinds of stuff. But as a kid, I remember never being afraid of anyone coming into our house because my dad was a force to be reckoned with. My dad, I remember I was probably six or seven years old when my dad started building his home gym. And apart from like vacation or being injured or sick, my dad did not take a day off. My dad was a mountain of a man. And so that's just not something I ever worried about. If someone comes into my house, like dad's going to get them. One day, uh, one night I was in high school and I woke up to the sound of my dogs barking, my neighbor who was clearly drunk screaming, and something hitting the side of our house. And I remember waking up and going, what in the world is going on? And then I hear, my, my, my room was down the hall from my parents' bedroom, and I hear my dad wake up, and my dad, you know, mumbling stuff under his breath that I can only imagine what it, what it was. And, 
And, you know, I hear him get up, and, you know, he's walking downstairs, goes downstairs. I hear the back door into the, the backyard open up, and he goes out. And this, the neighbor's out there just calling down curses on our dogs, on our house, on our sleeping family. And my dad walks out, and I swear, I kid you not, he, does, he goes exactly like this. Um, uh, excuse, excuse me, sir, uh, would, you, would you so kindly ask uh, get your dogs to stop barking. This man was throwing bricks at our dogs. And so my dad responded by telling him what would happen if he threw another brick over into our yard at our house. He then apologized, thanked my dad, and disappeared into his house. <laughs> and so we just knew growing you know those, the, the schoolyard taunts? Who knows if it is? Like, my dad will beat up your dad. You know, like, I don't know if it, still, if it still happens, but I remember being at school and that argument breaking out and saying, no, my dad will beat up your dad. And then all my friends were like, he will. <laughs> you, don't, you, don't, you don't mess with Bobby. He, you know, he'll mess you up. And so we need to recognize that Satan is a powerful enemy, that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He's the antagonist of the church. He's a bully. Scripture says that he's a liar, a thief, and a murderer, that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But Jesus is stronger than Satan. Jesus is stronger than the enemies. He turns Satan's taunts into silence, and he extinguishes the accusations of the enemy and drives him away. Any legitimate work of God to advance his kingdom is going to be met with opposition. Reality Carpenteria, you have experienced this for almost two decades. You have seen God do beautiful things in his church, and you have also seen the opposition of the enemy. You have seen the enemy come against the work that God is doing, and you have also seen that in every time, Jesus is stronger than Satan. You know this to be true. You believe this to be true. Receive this as truth in your own life, that whatever opposition you are coming up against in life, Jesus is stronger than that, that the he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Our enemy is defeated. He is a strong man, but he is bound. And Jesus is plundering his house. Jesus is setting captives free. And as many as who have believed on the gospel and trusted in Jesus have been snatched out of the kingdom of the enemy and rest assuredly in God's hand. And Jesus says that none can snatch you out of his hand. Jesus is stronger than Satan. This accusation of demon possession is ludicrous. It makes no coherent sense for Satan to come against his own kingdom. It will only mean his destruction. But not only, this, not only is this accusation absurd, it's also dangerous. See, the scribes are walking a fine line. The scribes are bordering on something that Jesus wants to make very clear. And so he gives a stern warning. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And Mark tells us in verse 30 that this remark by Jesus is specifically because they were accusing him of being under demonic influence. And so Jesus responds to the accusation of, of demon possession by warning them of the unpardonable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is one of the most confusing and one of the most debated questions in all of Christianity, but it doesn't need to be. 
Church, we have to stop taking words and, and, and passages and verses out of their context and trying to understand them by our 21st century context. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not unbelief. It's not cursing the Holy Spirit. It is not uh, using the Lord's name in vain. It's not adultery, idolatry, or murder, or any other sin that anyone can commit. We need to understand it in the context of this passage. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is recognizing the power of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus and assigning it to Satan. To see the work, the power in the life of Jesus and say, that's demonic. That is satanic what Jesus is doing. It's continually ascribing the work of the Spirit to the ministry, sorry, the work of the Spirit in the ministry of Jesus to Satan. It's affirming the reality of his power and persistently condemning it as evil. Now, often what happens in conversations about the unforgivable sin in the church is that everyone immediately sees the definition and starts sorting through everything they've ever said about Jesus in their disbelief, trying to make sure they never did that. So let me stop you, and, and let's stop the, 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 the frantic uh, indexing of your mem- memory database, and I just want to provide some clarity and, and some comfort. If you are even remotely concerned that you've committed this sin, you most certainly have not because it would indicate that you are still open to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And if you are open to the Spirit, then you cannot, you could not have rejected him as evil. This blasphemy is something, it's not something that we do accidentally. It's not something that happens in a single moment that is just like, "Uh uh-oh, you did it, now you're cut off. It is a persistent and continual hardening of our hearts to the person and work of Jesus because what we see in his life we call evil. It's calling light darkness and darkness light. And so every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. We need to hear Jesus' words here. At the end of days, there's not going to be a single sin or a category or variety of sin that the blood of Christ will not be able to cover. And therefore, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is categorically different than any other sin that human beings can commit. See, every other sin, all that is required is to receive the grace of God that is imparted to us through faith by the presence of the Holy Spirit uniting us to the death and resurrection of Christ. And so whatever it is that you've done, whatever vile thing that you have done, it is not unforgivable As long as through faith you come to Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit's imparting grace into your life. The reason that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is different and categorically different than all other sin is because it is rejecting and calling evil the one who would impart grace. So there's the things that we do that we need grace for, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is rejecting the one that brings grace. And so it's different. It is categorically different than any other sin. And the way we commit it is by continually hardening our hearts, by continually rejecting the person and work of Jesus Christ, specifically because we see the words and the teachings and the power and the ministry of Jesus as being something that is evil. And so if you are a believer, 
you most certainly have not committed this sin. And if you are not a believer because you believe that all of this Jesus stuff is made up, you have not committed this sin. You're wrong, but being wrong is not unforgivable. Sin, this sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, requires knowledge. It requires that you affirm the works that Jesus did, but reject the works as evil. And so you might ask, who would do this? Lots of people. Lots of people would do this. The number one uh, accusation against Jesus in the first centuries after his resurrection was that he was a sorcerer and that he led Israel astray. They saw what he did and said there was power, but that power was evil. And it actually did evil to God's people. And so lots of people have committed this unforgivable sin by declaring that Jesus was a worker of evil evil. But as long as you have breath, you have the opportunity to receive grace. Notice that Jesus doesn't even say that the scribes are guilty of this sin. He doesn't say, woe to you, you've gone and done it, you're cut off from grace. You've committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He warns them and says, listen guys, everything will be forgiven except what you are saying. If you continue to go down this road, it will not end well. He warns them of the path that they're on, that it may be cutting them, they may be cutting themselves off from grace. And so like the accusation of insanity, this can still be an opinion of the disbelieving world today. People may acknowledge that Jesus did remarkable things, even miraculous things, but the, at the end of the day, they reject him. And some will reject him because, not because they don't believe, Not because they don't believe that it's true, but I know people in my life that the reason they reject Jesus is because they can mentally ascend, they can intellectually ascend to the idea of God and the idea of a Savior, one who has power and all authority in heaven and on earth, but then they look at their life and say, if this God is real, then he's sadistic and enjoys afflicting people because when I look at my life, I see suffering. And if, and if this is the God, then, then this God is evil. He has hurt me. He has wounded me. He has broken my family. He has killed ones that I love. And he looks at it and says, this is, this is not somebody that I want to follow. And I would say that if that is your opinion of Jesus, that yeah, I believe that Jesus exists. I believe that he was the son of God. But when I look at my life, all I see is evil and violence and, 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 and all of this other stuff from the hand of God. Then you are in a position where you are rejecting Jesus on the, the, the grounds that he is sinister, on the grounds that he is wicked, on the grounds that he is not good. And that's dangerous. That is incredibly dangerous. Remaining on that path has tragic results. But if you're here today, then the Spirit of God is speaking through the, through the, the Word of God. Don't resist Him. Don't harden your hearts. Receive grace. Don't reject grace. So both of these ancient accusations are still alive and well today. If Jesus is not the Lord, if He is not God in the flesh, then these are our only two options. He's either out of His mind or He's possessed. As C.S. Lewis states in what's known as the trilemma, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord of all. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. This is the only remaining option. If he's not out of his mind, if he is not evil, then he is Lord and God. And this is the third accusation that we must make, that Jesus is God, but it is a dangerous accusation. As with the other two, acknowledging and proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and God is dangerous because it will require every ounce of your life. It will require your heart. It will require your mind. It will require your soul. It will require your strength. There is no area of your life that Jesus does not claim is his if you have trusted in him and believed in him as Lord. We belong to him. All of us, all of our lives, every ounce of us is all for him. It is a dangerous claim. And so we don't make this claim lightly. And instead of when we, when we recognize our sin and we, we recognize who Jesus is, one reaction could be, well, I'm not like, I can't come to him with all this stuff that I'm carrying with me. And Jesus, instead of smiting us and rejecting us for our sin, he invites us through faith to become his family to not just say, okay, thank you for believing me and go along your merry way and now I'll see you in heaven because you made this mental ascent to acknowledging my existence. J- Jesus is not so insecure that he just wants us to acknowledge that he existed. He wants all of us and he invites us to be his family. For those who believe there's no sin that he doesn't gladly forgive. Every sin and blasphemy, no matter how evil and vile, will be forgiven if you trust in Jesus. If you turn from sin and put your faith in Christ, your sin is forgiven. You will be saved from the hand of the enemy and you will be adopted into the family of God. No longer alienated from him, but belonging to him as family. And this brings us to the last paragraph in this passage passage. Jesus talks about family. His family arrives and sends word to Jesus. And Jesus is told, your mother and your brothers are here. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who were at his feet, his disciples, the 12 disciples that he had just called in the previous passage to follow him. He gestures with his hands, as Matthew says, when he describes this scene at those who are sitting around him and says, here, here are my mother and my brothers. Listen, if you are here to learn from the feet of Jesus, not here to be a part of something that God is doing in this building or here because you're, you know, well, grandma was a Christian and so I'm a Christian too. Like if you are here to be at the feet of Jesus, then Jesus gestures and says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Now this may seem like a very odd story to come at the heels of the accusations made against Jesus, but it makes perfect sense. So check this out. His, his, his family, 
who should have been relationally the closest to him, rejects him and says that he's out of his mind. And the scribes, the religious leaders, who should have been spiritually closest to God, look at him and reject him and say that he has a demon. And Jesus' words here about family in the first century context, if they are not true, would be seen as insane or evil. It would be foolish for anyone to say something that would alienate their family in this context where family is the highest priority. Family is where everyone got their source of identity. Family was who would take care of you if something went down in your life. It would be foolish. You would be insane to reject your family like that. You would also be labeled as a sinner. Jesus could be accused of not honoring his mother by saying this, which would be breaking a commandment. Jesus actually presses into their accusations and says, you think I'm crazy? You think I'm evil? And then says something that would force them to reckon with those statements and puts them in that place. And the, the, this hard saying of Jesus, where he's, he's saying that this, this, these people, I will be more connected to relationally and spiritually and familially because they do the will of God than any other human being outside of that. And it forces people to reckon with the apparent lunacy or the apparent sinisterness of that statement. And Jesus, through his ministry, he proves this to be true. He proves it not to be a lie. He proves it not to be evil, not to be foolish, but he proves it to be true. This, this, uh, um, sorry, I'm getting lost here. There's another reason, though, that Mark follows these accusations with this story. It's because in the context of Jesus' rejection by those closest to him, those who should have been nearest him, that he makes a way for all people to be brought close to him. See, the scene actually foreshadows the cross, See, Jesus will continue to be rejected and eventually crucified. He wasn't just called crazy or evil. He was murdered. And he wasn't just rejected by humans. But in that moment on the cross, when all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame for all of humanity's errors and and rebellion against God was laid upon Jesus' shoulders, the, the scriptures say that he became sin, though he knew no sin. He became sin. And so his father in heaven had to reject him because he is holy and just. And he turns his back on his only son. And his rejection on the cross, because Jesus received the rejection, the separation from God the Father that we deserve for our sin. Our punishment came upon him that we are now invited into the family of God, that we are given the title sons and daughters of God, that Jesus took our place so that we could take his. He took our sin so that we could join him in his place in God's family if we believe. And this is what it means to do the will of God. See, you might be asking, well, what is the will of God? What's the will of God for my life? It's the same thing that Jesus has been teaching throughout his whole ministry in the gospel of Mark. It is that the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. 
If you repent and believe the good news, if you turn from your sin and turn toward God and believe that your sin is forgiven by the death and resurrection of Christ, you are doing the will of God. You are doing the work of God in your life. And so if you want to be Jesus, brothers and sisters, if you want to be in the family of God, Jesus says one thing, all you gotta do, repent and believe, and you will be the family of God. And see, our experience of intimacy with God and our experience of belonging in the family of God is, is uh, it's not only our belonging that begins with faith and repentance, but our experience of intimacy and our experience of communion in the body of Christ continues by repentance and faith. See, if you are experiencing a lack of intimacy with God in your life, then we have to ask the question. If you're recognizing that, we have to ask, is there something that I'm allowing into my life that is separating me from God? Because nothing will interfere with intimacy like unrepentant sin. And so we repent of our sin. We trust that it's forgiven and that intimacy is restored. If we, uh, and it shouldn't be any other way. We shouldn't be foolish to think that I have been made a, a son or a daughter of God and so now I can continue living however I want and think that I'm going to experience that same level of intimacy. If you're married, right, you can't be radically opposed to your spouse and then be upset when you're not experiencing closeness in the marriage, we can't claim to have this union with Christ, this, this relationship with God, and then be confused that we're not experiencing it when we're living a life of rebellion against him. And so if we're, this intimacy is hindered, it makes sense to ask the question, God, search me. Is there anything in me that is separating me from you? And if we're not experiencing communion in the body of Christ, it shouldn't surprise us that we're afraid that people will find out what we're really doing. We've got hidden sin, hidden shame that we're keeping close. I don't want to get close to anybody because they might find out what I'm doing. They might find out who I really am. And so obedience does not, is not the source of our relationship with God. Faith is the source of our relationship with God, that we belong to God. We have been saved by grace through faith. But obedience is a fruit of faith. Doing the things that God has called us to do is a fruit of having been received by him. We don't obey so that we belong. We belong because of what Jesus has done. And so we obey. And so we follow him. Where do we stand with Jesus today? Is he a good moral teacher? Did he simply set a good example and then die tragically? Because if this is all he is, then he's either out of his mind or worse, an imposter, and he has led countless of millions of people astray. But if he is the Son of God, then we know for certain. The Scriptures tell us and the Spirit confirms that he has died in our place so that we could become children of God. John 1, 11 through 13 says, He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so the most rational thing, 
the most sane thing that we can do today is to give our lives to Jesus and follow him with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And again, this is dangerous because one of the reasons we shy away from giving our whole lives to Jesus is that we know the world will call us crazy. If you are completely sold out for Jesus in life, there's a reason the term Jesus freak exists. It's because people who are sold out for Jesus in all of their lives are kind of weird. The world doesn't like it. We're a strange bunch, church. I love you. You're beautiful. You are amazing people. But we're weird. The world looks at us and will call us crazy. Absolutely. Why would you live that way? Why would you give up all of these things that you could be doing, all of these pleasures of sin and all of this stuff to, to follow a dead guy? Because that dead guy didn't stay dead. And he raised from the dead and he lives and he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he saved me so that I could also be seated with Christ in the heavenlies. So I'll give him everything. I will give absolutely everything. Even our own family will think that we're crazy. And as soon as we begin to speak up about kingdom principles and calling people to live lives of faith and obedience to God that, that, that is not taught in the mainstream, that goes against the grain, they won't just call us crazy, they'll call us evil. Church, you recognize that the world is calling you evil for things that you believe. Just like they called Jesus crazy, just like they called him possessed by Satan, they look at the church, they look at the things that the church is teaching, and because we're not going along with the mainstream, because we're, we're not you know, uh, flying a flag out in front of the, the building or whatever it is, we're now bigots. You're a bigot for believing in Jesus. That's, that's what the world believes you are. And so just like Jesus, we are going to be called crazy. We are going to be called evil. They're going to stand against us. But it's not us that they are rejecting. It's Jesus. And this is nothing new. He was rejected so that we could be accepted. And when we are rejected, whether it's because people think we're out of our minds or a menace to society for clinging to the truth about Jesus, it's only a reminder that we never belonged to this world to begin with. We were made for something different. We were made for something greater. We belong to Jesus. And so let's do the reasonable thing and follow him with everything, regardless of the cost. Regardless of what people out there are going to call you, you follow him because he was rejected for you. You follow him because he died for you. You follow him because he was raised to new life and invites you into that new life. We follow him because he paid the ultimate price to make you his family. So let's celebrate that together today. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. Lord, we are so amazed by your grace. We are so amazed by the work that you've done. We are so amazed, God, honestly, that you would do the things that you've done, that you would give up what you gave up, Lord, that you would leave your throne in heaven, not so that everyone would bow at your feet, but you left your throne in heaven not to be served but to serve and to give your life as a ransom, Lord, that you left your eternal glories and came to a world full of sin and darkness and evil and you let evil do its worst so that you could give us your best, so that you could call us into life. God, we have nothing if we have not you. And if we have you, we have everything. And so, God, I pray that in this time that we have now, that we would respond to you, that we would respond to who you are, that we would know the world will call us crazy. The world will call the truths that are taught through Scripture 
They'll call it evil because it doesn't fit in the world that, that we want to live in today. But we know that it's the word of life. We know that it's good and that it's true and that it's valuable. And so, Lord, we receive it. God, I know there's a lot of things in the Bible that are difficult to receive. The teachings and the work of Jesus were difficult to receive, but I pray that they would press us into reckoning with your identity and not putting you into our box, but allowing our lives to be uh, completely opened up and transformed, that we would be transformed by your word, not try to transform your word into something that's socially acceptable. God, you give us deep and, and honest truths about who you are and about who we are. And you say that we're your family. You say that we are your brothers and sisters and mother. And so, Lord, as family, we come into this place today and we want to worship you with one voice. Lord, we want to sing, we want to pray, we want to enjoy and celebrate this time that we have together. God, we love you. Would you lead us in this space? We ask in Jesus.